Bitcoin and Co. The podcast about crypto economy and the future of money. Hosted by author and speaker Anita Posch. Hello and welcome to this episode of my Bitcoin and Co. podcast. I'm happy that you're listening. You can find more details about this episode at www.bitcoincopodcast.com. Please subscribe to the podcast, share it on social media, leave a review on iTunes and recommend it to your friends. This supports the continuation of the podcast. The more listeners and subscribers, the more people gain knowledge about Bitcoin and Co. too. Let's start with the episode after this short message from our sponsors. You're looking for a solution to store Bitcoin the safe and easy way? The Card Wallet is a high secure way to storing Bitcoin offline, developed by Confinity and the Austrian State Printing House. The Card Wallet is a professional cold storage solution made with high quality security materials and tamper proof features that prevent the manipulation of the card. If you want to know more or buy the Card Wallet, go to www.cardwallet.com. So hello and welcome to the Bitcoin and Co. podcast. Today I have a guest from Liechtenstein, Demelzer Hayes, is a crypto researcher, asset manager, entrepreneur, and she is teaching at the University of Liechtenstein a course on blockchain technology. Demelzer, hello and thank you for your time. Thank you so much, Anita, for having me on Bitcoin and Co. <laughs> I'd love to. I mean, I've read your crypto research report, I think from the first edition, and uh, it's very uh, well written and I think very, very well researched too, and very interesting every time. Well, thank you so much. I love writing it and I love working with uh, Mark on the report and just, you know, going more into depth into these questions and doing some data analysis and it's, it helps me keep up too. And that's, that's really been exciting. Yeah, I think that's the interesting thing about research that uh, you always have the newest information and knowledge. Yeah, um, and since we publish it, if we're wrong, we find out right away. <laughs> so. so, as I've read, you live and work in Liechtenstein. Uh, how did that come along? Because I think you're originally from the US. That's that's correct. I am from Florida originally. I was living in France where I was doing my master's degree in economics and I I happened to attend a conference on philosophy that was hosted by the princely family of Liechtenstein in 2014 in Liechtenstein. So I had never heard of the country before but I was interested in a specific type of philosophy and I attended conferences about that philosophy all around the world. Mm -hmm. And one of the meetings happened to be in Liechtenstein. And so I booked tickets. I went to Zurich. I'd never been to Switzerland before. Um, the weather was really nice. Um, I took the bus number 11 all through the, the, uh, Oberland in Liechtenstein and then, um, saw the castles and saw the Alps for the first time in my life. I had never seen the Alps and, and then when, when the conference was over, the princely family invited us all to their castle and we got to kind of have cocktails and, and talk to the princely family. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I was charmed to say, to say the least. <laughs> um, it, it was like a fairy tale. And I remember at that conference that 
a few people there discussed discussed how open the country was towards entrepreneurship. So they were trying to make the country um, friendlier to entrepreneurs. They were trying to streamline the, the, the licensing process for different businesses. And a year later, I came back and submitted a request to install a Bitcoin ATM. So that was 2015. I had a meeting with the financial market authorities. And at that time, they had not had anyone in person uh, present on Bitcoin, on a Bitcoin business model for the country. And I presented to them. I um, They said we need to take six months or so to, to d- discuss this because it could be a political decision. We're not, we're not sure that we can give you um, approval. And six months later, sure enough, they came back and, and said, yeah, it's fine. It's not a problem. <laughs> okay, cool. So you installed the first Bitcoin ATMs in Liechtenstein? Exactly. Okay, but, but how did you have the idea? I mean, how when did you hear, hear, hear about Bitcoin the first time? The first time I heard about Bitcoin was in 2013. Um, I was exposed to it because I was working in India, in Punjab, on a microfinance project. And in that in that position, I had to research how successful the self-help groups were in India where women were saving small amounts of money together and trying to um, invest that money. And we had to collect data on if their savings were successful, if women were saving, what were the savings rates looking like, if things happened that were obstacles that stopped them from saving. Um, and there was a ton of obstacles. I mean, for first of all, a lot of women couldn't read and write in the in the area where I was in northern Punjab and they couldn't so therefore they couldn't get bank accounts I mean they couldn't fill out any paperwork and secondly a lot of the banks didn't want to deal with them anyways because they were saving they were saving two dollars a month mm-hmm. um, so I noticed at that time that different women were using cell phone credits on their cell phones in order to save money and send money all of them had like rudimentary smartphones, mm-hmm. even though it was um, in like kind of not very wealthy area. Um, but they all had text messaging um, applications on their phones and they could send these phone credits to each other. And I started Googling online phone credits. And I found out about M-Pesa, which was really big in Kenya through Vodafone. And then I also found out about Bitcoin. Mm-hmm. So um, that was 2013. And then 2014, I had a friend um, who had done a lot more reading on the topic of Bitcoin and him and I just took a deep dive. Um, his name was Andreas and we, we just like would just ask each other questions and talk about it all the time. I mean, it was like, finally I had kind of like a partner in crime Mm -hmm. to discuss Bitcoin with. And yeah, then it was just from there on every day Mm -hmm. since then. So that's, yeah, that's great to have someone else to discuss it all the time. Yeah, exactly. And then you just get more and more excited. And then the other person's like, yeah, this is a great idea. Yeah, Yeah. 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 And nobody's there to like stop you and be like, wait guys, this is risky. No, nobody's there to. And, and do you think the women in Punjab at the current situation could they use Bitcoin to save or to uh, at least have a kind of money that belongs to them and not to M-Pesa or any other uh, credit uh, telephone credit company? Well, I think they could. I mean, I think the transaction fees on Bitcoin are probably too high for it to make sense for them to use Bitcoin to save with mm. um, because their savings are so low. I think they would need a micropayment money. Yeah. But maybe like a, you know, a second layer or 
maybe a, a like um, one of these more centralized um, private federated blockchains could maybe be more interesting for them um, because they're they're doing. I mean, I think the key thing was that like a lot of women just want to have access to savings that like they can actually hide from their husbands. Mm-hmm. So it needs to kind of be something that can be private um, mm-hmm. and where they don't have to constantly go into a bank or, you know, make trips and stuff like that to where their husbands are going to ask questions and be suspicious. So, I mean, like a lot of women in, in Punjab, um, you know, they got into a big um, problem when the prime minister Modi demonetized the 501,000 rupee note because all of a sudden these women that were hiding cash had to admit they'd been hiding cash and they had to turn it in. Otherwise Mm -hmm. they couldn't convert it to, to anything They would Mm -hmm. lose their savings. So Mm -hmm. they had to kind of admit that they had these cash piles. And um, so I think that some kind of micropayment currency would be great Mm -hmm. for, for a lot of these women. Um, But I'm not sure if Bitcoin is the solution. Do you, don't you think that lightning might be a solution? Well, you know, I, um, I think that, you know, what's interesting about lightning, for example, is like, if you look at it from like a game theoretical point of view, right now it's really affordable to open up a channel. It's like 10 cents. Um, but if the transaction fees on the main blockchain network go up again to like $50, then it's going to be $50 to open up a network, a new channel. So the goal would be to open up all the channels right now while, while the fees are low. But then the problem is when you go to settle on the fin- on the blockchain again, on the Bitcoin blockchain again in like five years from now, you have to pay whatever fee is the going fee on the, on the Bitcoin blockchain network. So the problem for Lightning for me is that you st- even if they get it working, you're going to need to have the transaction volume in that channel to be higher than the transaction mm-hmm. fees required mm-hmm. to close and open it in order mm-hmm. for it to make sense. Mm-hmm. And we don't know where those fees are going to go in five years. I mean, I think if Bitcoin gets really adopted, that fees on the main chain could be $5,000 per transaction. Really? I mean, we saw it at $50 already, Yeah. you know, and, and I mean, people like, like Luke Dash Jr., people are calling for smaller blocks, higher fees. Um, and I think that actually with the the mining rewards running out, the Coinbase rewards coin running mm-hmm. out, the only thing that is going to incentivize validation is high fees. So for me, I see the Bitcoin blockchain as more of a very secure, high-fee network. And I'm not sure if people that want to save $2 a month need that level of security. No, so it's, it's hard to say what's going yeah. to happen. I mean, I would love for it all to occur with, with Bitcoin. Mm. But I think I think actually that the fees there are so high, the security is so high, that that's only going to be for high transaction volumes. And Liquid Network would be more like Swift, mm-hmm. where it would still be processing $300 per transaction or $500 per transaction on average, but not like micropayments of, of, of half a cent. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that would be a different... You mean, you mean Liquid, the, this is a sidechain? Uh, from Blockstream? Yeah, Liquid. Yeah. Liquid is also like a potential scaling solution. Um, I'm not as familiar with Liquid or Plasma as I am with Lightning, but mm-hmm. yeah, I think all you know, all three of these are in the are in the running. I just think that it's going to be hard for you know, especially Lightning to to be used as a micropayment network. Mm-hmm. 
yeah, we'll see. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, I'm <laughs> excited just in though. The, at the beginning. Definitely. Yeah. I mean, it seems uh, that you're working a lot because you're teaching, you're writing the quarterly report, you are a PhD student and doing asset management at Incrementum. Um, when do you sleep? <laughs> exactly. No, well, my boss, I mean, my boss, Mark Valak and, and co-author on the report, he showed me a video when I joined Incrementum um, of Arnold Schwarzenegger actually saying like how he accomplished so much. And Arnold Schwarzenegger said, well, I just sleep fast. <laughs> so, and my, my boss is from Vienna and showed me this video, you know, to kind of prepare me for the next two years. <laughs> um, but I mean, actually it was, it was so intense, um, the past two years that I actually, um, yeah, my health, my health took, took a hit. So I, the past two months now, I've actually taken a step back from some of the work, um, And in fall, I'll no longer be teaching corporate finance or principles of finance um, or advising master's theses or bachelor's theses because it's just too much work and it's not always related to blockchain. So I want to focus 100% on blockchain and not teach compounding and net present value and that kind of stuff and bond valuation. I mean, it's it's fun, but um, I don't. I just don't have the time for it. I need to make time for myself you know, working out, playing piano, doing things that don't make money, um, yeah. you know, and, and letting my mind relax, go hiking and mm -hmm. yeah, spending time with friends. So, yeah, I've read you like to, uh, garden. I do. Do you I have do. a garden at well, the moment? I do at the moment, but we actually haven't planted anything. We won't plant anything until May, uh, May 1st. But yeah. yeah, so around May 1st, um, I'll start planting things in the garden. And okay. <laughs> one of my colleagues has has given me some seeds already for, mm -hmm. you know, really large pumpkins, really large kerbis and this kind of thing. So I'm going to um, try to plant some things in the garden. And yeah, luckily I, I live, I live in, in, a, in a, like I rent um, part of a home that is owned by a local Lichtensteiner mm -hmm. and um, his family makes the garden every year. So oh, it's okay. just easy to join in and garden <laughs> yeah. with people that know how okay. to do it. Okay, yeah. that's fine. Yeah. So uh, your PhD studies, um, what are you researching on? Okay, so, uh, so I'm doing my official PhD in business economics mm -hmm. um, at the University of Liechtenstein. And I have three papers that I need to write in order to um, meet the qualifications to defend my thesis. So the first paper that I am writing or um, almost finished writing is on the relationship between hash rate of Bitcoin and Bitcoin's price. Um, because a lot of people argue that the Bitcoin price follows the hash rate in the sense that the price goes up when more miners join the network. So they argue that the network is more secure, which gives the network more value and therefore people demand more Bitcoin and they push the price up. So basically, I thought it was the other way around, that as the price went up, that incentivized more miners to join the network because they could earn more from their returns, from their uh, rewards. Mm -hmm. They could sell their 12.5 Bitcoin per block, and if they could sell it for a higher price, then more people would join the network. And um, there's been a couple papers done on this topic already, but the problem is, is that, you know, statistically, when you have two two variables that can be um you know reversely caused they can be um 
you know, there can be endogeneity or there can be um, a chance that one influences the other and the other influences the other kind mm-hmm. of in a reverse causality. Um, statistically, you can't just run a normal correlation. And the papers that have been published so far have kind of just run a correlation and, and they've shown that there is a relationship if we just do those two numbers. But correlation isn't isn't really robust for proving which direction the relationship works in. Mm-hmm. So the, my first paper was basically doing um, a uh, more kind of sophisticated statistical model that allowed me to decouple this relationship and try to understand which causes which. And so far, unfortunately, my results are not very satisfactory. I, I, when I, when I actually take the, the change in hash rate between each day. So, um, yesterday's, ha- today's hash rate minus yesterday's hash rate divided by yesterday's hash rate. And I combine that to the change in price. So today's price minus yesterday's price divided by yesterday's price, and I take this growth rate over time, the relationship disappears completely, as if there's almost no relationship between these two variables, um, which doesn't make sense logically. So I'm going to go back in and try to do it with, with, la- with lags to see if there's like, okay, maybe the price causes the mining hash rate, because that makes more sense, right? It makes more sense that actually the mining hash rate that we see on the market today didn't occur because of the price yesterday. Mm -hmm. It occurred because of the price six months ago, because all the hardware took months to, to install, to order. Some people were delayed with getting them new graphics cards and everything like that. So the next step for me is to do lags and see if the relationship becomes meaningful at a six month lag, a nine month lag like that. Mm -hmm. So that's the next step. And then, um, submit it to a peer reviewed journal and, That'd be my first paper. My second paper, I'll be a little bit quicker on that. Um, it's robust optimization. So it's, it's, you know, in 1952, um, Markowitz basically wrote this paper on mean variance optimization, which is just a way of allocating assets within a portfolio. Mm-hmm. So what he pointed out was, was that at the time, many people were just picking stocks that they liked off the stock market. And he said that, you know, that's not, the best way to do it because some of these stocks are positively correlated. Some of them are negatively correlated. And actually what you want to do is you want to pick stocks that have no correlation so that when you put them in one portfolio, um, your risk adjusted return improves because some stocks will go up when others go down. Some stocks will go up and others will go up. It's going to be completely uncorrelated. So there won't be any um, systematic like shock that can occur to the entire portfolio. And he made this great um, analysis that instead of just investing in three stocks or something like that, we should actually invest in like a diversified portfolio of stocks and, and they should be uncorrelated with each other. Um, and that became like the guiding principle for asset management for the past 50 years, effectively. But unfortunately, it's not that great of a strategy because what what asset managers do is they take all the previous data, say, for example, on cryptocurrencies, they feed it into this formula that basically checks, um, you know, how correlated each of them is in the past, how what has been their covariance matrix between each of the assets, what has been the price return of each of the assets. Um, and then they basically make a portfolio based on the weights. They, they make a weights of the portfolio based on the previous data. 
Mm-hmm. But the problem with that is that, you know, the, the past isn't, isn't, isn't going to predict the future, right? So robust optimization of cryptocurrencies, it's just a little bit more of a, um, it's an alternative way to make weights for a cryptocurrency portfolio that is more in line with the value at risk and the conditional value at risk that, um, uh, is set out in the Basel, uh, Basel regulations for, um, the risk that's, that's taken on by banks. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's kind of, I'm, I'm saying if we're going to be in a regulated environment and we don't want to expose pension funds or, uh, insurance companies to undo risk with cryptocurrencies, how can they invest conservatively? Um, and what's the, going to be their maximum loss on the worst 5% of days in the market and everything like that. And that's, that's kind of where that, that paper's going. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the final paper is on stable coins because oh, I'm super okay. interested in stable coins right now. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that like, I'm, I'm wondering if there's going to be a decentralized stable coin, because I think that that could really compete with Ethereum um, or even Bitcoin. Mm-hmm. And that's more controversial, but I, I think if a decentralized stablecoin came to the market, that, and I'm, I'm normally a Bitcoin like bull, you know, mm-hmm. so I really am, I love Bitcoin and don't want to change and see anyone else, but. But how could a decentralized stablecoin be valued? Like with a basket of goods or? I mean, there's different proposals. Um, one that I, that I heard about lately that I thought found was interesting was, a stablecoin backed by Bitcoin, actually. So it's, it sounds it sounds a bit strange because Bitcoin's volatile, but um, apparently there was a paper written by Irving Fisher in the 1920s um, that was he's an economist uh, and and he he wrote a paper about the gold standard and having like you know certificates backed by gold that could be redeemed for different amounts of gold. So, I mean, normally with the gold standard, what you had is you had like a uh, Deutschmark worth a certain amount of gold. Mm-hmm. Um, and whenever you took the Deutschmark in, you were supposed to get that amount of gold. And the problem with that standard was that the central banks were, were printing a lot of money. So they always had to constantly um, increase the amount of Deutschmarks that it required to get that ounce of gold or however much gold they were giving for the peg. Um, because it's a really, it's, it's really hard to keep a fixed peg. Um, but at the other hand, on the other hand, I think that, you know, as a money, gold isn't exactly the best vehicle because it doesn't have stable purchasing power because its supply doesn't respond to changes in demand. So if demand all of a sudden spikes for gold, so if we all think we're going into an economic collapse and everybody starts demanding a lot of gold, the supply on the market doesn't increase in response to that demand. So the, the purchasing power of each ounce of gold rises. And as a money, we want stability. You know, I mean, I think there is an argument to be made for unit of account as being a main application of a money. And Fiat, like the euro or the dollar, even though they slowly lose value over time, they're more stable in purchasing power um, empirically than gold right now at the moment. I mean, I would I would prefer to have gold to store my wealth. But if I wanted to buy a coffee, I would want to just change my gold into something else and then buy the coffee, not not have everything priced in gold because your price of your of your coffee would have to change every day. 
Mm-hmm. And for business accounting purposes, this is very um, difficult to forecast because you don't know what the demand is going to be in the future of gold. So you don't know. It's very it's very hard to make business decisions when you don't have a stable unit of account. Mm-hmm. Um, so actually what the model would be for the stable coin with Bitcoin, which I think is interesting, I want to look into um, academically, like, uh, you know, work on it in a paper, is having a, a stable coin that is basically tied or pegged with a fixed peg to a reference basket. Anyone can just, I mean, whoever creates the token can decide what the reference basket could be. It could be, you know, um, a liter of oil, uh, a, um, a baguette, um, you know, uh, a rent, rent for a house. It could be, you know, you can create your own consumer price index. Whatever entrepreneur makes this coin, um, can create their own price index, their own basket of goods. And the token can always be exchanged for that basket of goods. I mean, it'll always be worth that basket of goods. On the other hand, as we all know that Bitcoin's price is going to, I mean, Bitcoin's price is volatile. We would give that basket of goods and that token would be worth a dynamic amount of Bitcoin based on however much Bitcoin you need to buy that reference basket. Okay, so the, so the system, what it does is it basically allows for two tokens, one Bitcoin that can be store of value and one medium of exchange that can be used for purchases. And this medium of exchange token, I think if it was in a decentralized model, I think this would be, this would be a really interesting way for central banks to, or, or anyone, any private person that wants to, to become a central bank, you know, to, to mm-hmm. issue a money. But the, then it would need the same unique properties that Bitcoin has in the way that it's open, transparent, public, uh, no company behind. Uh, the, the founders should like be anonymous. Um, it's a question if that's possible again. Oh, great question. I mean, I, I think that's why no one's created this yet. Because, <laughs> yeah, because for whoever creates it, you know, it's, it's this is really direct competition with, with you know, Because I think that if we if we have a money that's all of a sudden more stable than fiat, and it's backed by reserves, then it's it's hard to really justify why we should use some kind of inferior money. You know, I mean, it, it would be hard to, to to argue that. I mean, at this at the at the current time being, for me, fiat money makes sense because Bitcoin's unstable. I mean, I'm happy to have some some fiat money, not not a lot, but I'm happy to have some. Yeah, I mean, at least in our countries, like in Europe and uh, the exactly. States. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Before we continue our show, a short message from our sponsors. Thanks for listening and we will be back soon. Start accepting Bitcoin, Dash or Litecoin for your business today with the Salamantex cryptocurrency payment service. The SX1801 POS terminal by Salamantix offers an easy system for you to accept payments in cryptocurrency absolutely risk-free and receive the exact amount in fiat, such as euro or US dollar, into your company account. Easy tax reporting tools and system integrations allow you to just go ahead with your business as usual. Sign up now with Salamantix and start the easy way to crypto pay. Find more information at salamantex.com. That's S-A-L-A-M-A-N-T-E-X dot com. 
So coming back, um, I mean, back here to the, the Bitcoin market, we are in a beer market. It's the longest, I think, ever. Huh? Well, I, actually, I was I was just writing about that in the last report because we're, pre- we're preparing the March edition. And mm-hmm. okay, so the last, the lowest price was 3125 in December. We've already gone up technically 20% since then. And we haven't reached a new low since December. So you could say we're in the longest bear market, or you could say we've already started the new bull market. Ah, okay. okay, interesting. <laughs> it depends on how you how you look at the coin. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh-huh. Okay. Um, I've seen a podcast or a video with you where you said um, that large investors don't invest at the moment in Bitcoin because if they would... Uh, they would uh, increase the price, um, and that's. It sounded like that. That is the reason why large investors don't invest. Do they wait, or what uh, did you mean by that? Um, let's see. I guess it depends. I mean, I I think large investors are not entering. I mean, at least on our side, like we've had calls with like large asset managers in Austria, and large asset managers in Germany. Um, and we've seen, they'll, they'll say things like, well, in the next, you know, two years, we want to allocate 1% of our portfolio to mm-hmm. cryptocurrencies, mm-hmm. but we're just not ready yet. Mm-hmm. And when we kind of ask them, well, you know, why aren't you interested? And they're just like, well, we want to see where the market goes, <laughs> you know? So I think like right now, it, Bitcoin took such a heavy loss that mm-hmm. they're actually thinking that it, it might die. Mm-hmm. Like it might, this might be over with. And, um, I think what would, what would it, what it would take for them is probably like 30, 40% improvement in price before they actually start to think maybe this is a new bull market and we should get involved. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that a lot of big money, like, because they're so risk averse, like the institutions, um, like pension funds and insurance companies and university endowments and these kind of thing, because they're so risk averse, they're actually pro cyclical investors. So as the price goes up, that's when they buy. Mm-hmm. Um, and as the price goes down, that's when they don't buy. Mm-hmm. So, um, I think that right now they're sitting on the sidelines waiting. I have heard recently of certain electricity companies, um, in Europe that are beginning to invest, um, or, or they're taking final decisions on, on investing in cryptocurrencies and in mining. So, I mean, in mining, it would be very clever because they sit at the the the, the source of the electricity. Exactly. Yeah. There's there's one really large company in Germany that um, I recently did a uh, like kind of report for on on uh, actually privacy coins, strangely enough, and um, proof of work. Mm-hmm. And they were yeah, they're you know taking upper management decisions right now to invest or not in. And, cryptocurrencies and is that then clean energy i mean water or sun or is it uh, oh that's a good question um because you know we always have this discussion about bitcoin mining and how awful it is and um good question i mean i did think that was a little bit interesting that on the one hand a lot of the media really pushes us as individuals to not use electricity or like you know politicians and stuff push us not to use electricity and be conservative um, but on the other hand, if our local electricity companies get into mining Bitcoin, it's it's going to be it's 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 like two different avenues. Mm. Um, I'm not sure if it's going to be clean or not. That's a good question. Yeah, 
But I think there's one misunderstanding in, in general, that is that um, if the use of Bitcoin goes up, also the um, use of electricity has to go exponentially up. That's not true. Well, how, what do you say? Um, I mean, you know, that's a great question, too, that needs research. Um, of course, the, the mining hardware does get more efficient. And I think that eventually we're going to find the equilibrium for the amount of security that the network actually needs. Because right now we're like, we're like figuring out how much security does this network actually need? Do we need it to actually cost $8 billion to, for, to attack it? You know, is that how secure we need this? Um, and, and how much more security do we need? So, I mean, I, I mean, as they add more hash power, it does, technically become more secure in the sense that it's going to cost more for an adversary to to um, have a successful attack, 51% attack. Um, but I don't know if we know how secure we want this to be. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, $8 billion dollars doesn't sound too high. I mean, a government like China or Russia could easily afford these $8 billion, but uh, what would uh, be the sense i mean just destroying it exactly. but then we have a hard fork exactly so it goes on exactly yeah. exactly and i think it's going to be really exciting to see if anybody tries to attack this and what their strategy will be because um right now we're we're like overly securing this network even though all of the attack vectors don't make any sense even if the network wasn't that secure, because we could always do a hard fork, mm-hmm. e- even if the network only cost $1,000 to attack, mm. you know? So it's, it's, I mean, we could, you know, it's where I think we're finding out right now how secure we want it to be. And I think some networks will, will not need as much security as the main settlement layer for yeah. global money, you yeah. know? Yeah. So other networks, like if you have like a, like a, you know, file sharing program or, you know, you have a decentralized Facebook or something like that, probably don't need it to cost $8 billion dollars to... Mm-hmm. I mean, that's just my... I mean, talking about Facebook coin, uh, what do you think of it? I mean, actually, I... I Well, from my understanding, it's centralized. Yeah. Yeah, like J.P. Morgan it's coin. Or, Facebook. Yeah, yeah, Facebook, yeah. I mean, I think, you know, it's, it's, it's great that private firms are entering into the currency market because I think that for me, I want to see competition in money. I think that's how we're going to produce the highest quality money that, that humans have ever seen. Um, and I think that once we have high quality money, we can, um, restore our savings and our capital structure and the economy. So I'm, I just want high quality money again. Um, and I don't really mind who makes it, but I, I personally don't think that I would be interested in a money that has a single point of failure. Mm. Um, so if Facebook or JP Morgan or the US Fed or. Yeah. Yeah. And also a money that's not private at all. I mean, Facebook is selling our data. What, what are they selling then? Exactly. Yeah. I mean, you know, I, I, I wouldn't want somebody that could censor me or could inflate the value or mm-hmm. i mean i don't really see the improvement over what the current system offers but i'm still happy to see firms like facebook getting involved because what it does is it 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 kind of like primes people's minds for a non-government based money mm-hmm. yeah and then once they realize that the government doesn't need to be the only creator of money then it's like quite obvious to use cryptocurrencies that are decentralized instead of mm-hmm. facebook coin mm-hmm. So it's kind of like getting them ready. 
I heard a talk uh, the other day from an ex-central banker of Russia, and uh, he was saying that he sees Bitcoin like the haute couture in fashion. So there is an expensive money, but nobody uses it. And on the other hand, there will be um, cryptocurrencies from nation, nation, uh, national cryptocurrencies from central banks, and that there will be no more banks because he thinks that's the only way to um, go forward. You know, the like it, it, it sounded like the crash is coming mm -hmm. and the central banks are the only um, organizations or institutions uh, that can uh, handle this with giving out uh, national cryptocurrencies. I mean, that sounded a bit dangerous for me because he said he doesn't believe in open source. So it would, of course, be a private permissioned uh, currency from... A nation state like Russia. <laughs> oh, great. Oh, <laughs> hello. I'll, I'll invest in that ICO. <laughs> That's a, yeah. Um, okay. Um, well, when you say investing, yesterday we met at the Forbes Women's Summit in Vienna and you were hosting a workshop on the topic of making money. And um, can you tell us what are the key takeaways, uh, the tips you can give small investors? Like, for instance, if I want to invest 50 euros a month, uh, should I, what should I do? Okay. Yeah. Great. Um, well, I mean, let's see. Generally, I mean, I don't think it's easy to get rich quick, but I think there are, there are some, some steps you can take to get rich, to increase your probability of getting rich in the long run. Um, so, I mean, generally, like, I, I like to think, first of all, um, saving, saving is just the key thing. And then once you have savings to, to invest it in, in a diverse range of, of assets. And I like assets that produce income, um, monthly income, passive income, some kind of stream of, of income. So, I mean, right now there's really not a market for Bitcoin lending, um, I mean, you can maybe get 3% on, on an exchange, but the risk is enormous that the exchange goes under or gets hacked. So, I mean, 3% is really like minuscule um, return there. But I mean, I think as the infrastructure builds up, we're going to see markets for lending um, building where people can lend out assets, crypto assets um, in a maybe safe manner. And, and then I'll probably get involved there. But uh, right now, what I would say for $50, if you have $50, I would say cost average invest. So, you know, I would go with invest $50 a month. Don't save up a thousand and then go into the market at one point with the thousand. Because, um, when we actually got the license to, to launch our crypto fund, um, I was so bullish on Bitcoin. This was like February of 2018. So I just thought, okay, it's at $8,000, but it's going to turn back around and go to 12 or 10 or 20 or whatever. At 80, you know, I was so bullish on Bitcoin and I was like telling Mark and, and Ronnie and, and the partners, I was like, we need to just take all the capital and, and go in. And they were like, no, Demelza, we've been doing this for 20 years. This asset class is not different from any other, the, you know, slow and steady wins the race, you know, don't get over, you know, oh, we're excited. And, uh, and sure enough, they were right. You know, they were right. Um, we saw some people that went all in. Mm -hmm. other funds that went all in and, and it's been tough, tough here for them. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I would say take $50 every month, invest it. And I would try to diversify a little bit. Um, so at first I thought you should just diversify blindly. So 
one over in naive strategy. So you take the top 10 and you put $5 in each if you have a $50 investment. So but like the top 10 cryptocurrencies on the market. Exactly. That would be one strategy. Just yeah. kind of blind, mm -hmm. blindly invest mm -hmm. in the top 10, top 50, something like that. Mm -hmm. But now I realize that actually a lot of coins have absolutely no business model. So, so, so a lot of coins I'm really scared of, especially the utility coins I'm really scared of because, you know, the sales pitch there is, and still nobody's been able to explain this to me. And I really want somebody to prove it wrong to me. Um, the sales pitch with the utility token is this buy the token. Now, eventually more people are going to use this, this blockchain mm -hmm. for decentralized applications. Mm -hmm. Once more people use it, the demand for that token is going to increase and you can realize a capital gain. But the problem with that sales pitch is that these decentralized applications rely on low and steady transaction fees. And as more people use that network, the transaction fees become high and volatile, mm -hmm. which many dApps, like during the Ethereum um, like scaling problem, when Bitcoin also had the scaling problem, many dApps on the Ethereum network just just like stopped being used because the fees just went up so high and the volatility increased so much that it does, it doesn't make sense to have a frequent flyer mile program where the, the points change in value all the time and mm -hmm. the fees to transact them change in value all the time. Mm -hmm. So the business model for a lot of utility tokens doesn't make sense to me. Um, and that, you know, so anyways, I would actually say, If I were to invest $50, I would go for Bitcoin. And I can't give investment advice, by the way. Yeah, yeah, no, that's not an investment <laughs> But advice. But personally, yeah. myself, yeah. if I had $50 to invest every month, I would probably go for like Bitcoin, um, some privacy coins, maybe like um, Monero or Dash or Zcash. Um, then I would also probably go for probably some stable coins. I like MakerDAO a lot. Um, MKR, the governing token. I, I also want to find a, a stable coin that tries to replicate the, the stable coin model that I said. I mean, mm -hmm. once somebody creates that, I'll, I'll be investing in it. Um, and, and not, and I mean, not the stable part, but the, the governing token of the stable coin that, that can appreciate in value. Um, that's, mm -hmm. that's the part I would focus on. And, And then also I would probably pick up some security token offerings, um, Binance coin. I just think Binance coin is really interesting. Mm -hmm. um, it, it's related to the amount of transactions that occur on the Binance network. And I think that Binance as an exchange, um, CZ and, and the creator, the, the team behind Binance is just really dynamic. And uh, I think they're going to have a big part of the future um, in this market. So um, Binance coin or, or any kind of security token offering where It's they're paying out either equity or revenue sharing or some kind of interest on a debt, um, some kind of real financial model behind. Mm -hmm. I would be interested in those security tokens, mm -hmm. but only a security token that's also in a regulated market. I guess. Well, Binance coin is kind of like, you know, they're kind of trying to like be the pirates of crypto. So they, you know, they, they, they have a model where smart contracting kind of ensures that investors can benefit from the transactions on the, on the exchange, but mm -hmm. they don't actually, I'm not really sure what court system would uphold Binance coin as a, as a investment contract. You know, like if I said to them, here's this smart contract I have with this company called Binance and they all of a sudden stopped paying my dividend. Um, can you enforce this? Mm -hmm. I, they would be like, well, 
you know, where's Binance even located? It's located in like five different countries, Uganda, Singapore, and like every single time the regulators do anything, Mm -hmm. they move to a new country and, you know, so, so I like, it's not, it's like, you know, but security tokens that, that are in a regulated environment, I think are for me more interesting than, than ICO tokens. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So we're coming to an end now, sadly, because it's a great talk. I would like to talk with you longer, but uh, we can't. Um, Can you tell us about the topics of the next crypto research report? Sure. Thanks a lot for yeah letting me discuss the report. Um, it is available on www.cryptoresearch.report and it's available for free in German and in English. And the next edition is going to focus on mining. So we are we interviewed several mining companies in the Dach region because we also um, similar to your podcast we try to f- focus on on this region um, Germany. Austria, Switzerland, and Liechtenstein. So we've interviewed one um, Viennese mining company, one um, two Swiss two Swiss mining companies, one from Palo Alto, and yeah, and that's it. Um, and we 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 asked them questions: How are their profits during a bear market? Um, how do they see the future of mining? Um, how does you know um, things like Proof of stake or, you know, how, how do these trends, how, do, how are these going to impact their business models? How can people invest in them? Um, and so it's going to have a big issue on mining. Then we have a exclusive interview with John Trump, who is the creator of the Cuckoo Cycle mining algorithm. Um, and let's that see. That sounds funny. Never heard of it. Oh, Cuckoo no. Cycle. Yeah. It's kind of, um, gaining popularity right now because there's, there's different coins that, um, use it um, instead of other mining algorithms and it's kind of gaining adoption. Um, yeah. And then let's see. Oh, we, we have an article on gold and Bitcoin. So a portfolio with gold and Bitcoin, um, which is kind of like where Mark and I, that's kind of where we feel the most comfortable um, between those two assets. And we, we kind of feature a, a strategy there with rebalancing bands and Then we have, let's see, one more. Oh, and one more article is on technical analysis. So I'm not a technical analyst. Um, so that article is actually written by another author, um, Florian Grumies, um, who's, I think he's also from Vienna. Um, but yeah, he's, so he's, so he's writing an article on technical analysis because last year we published technical analysis article in our March edition and it somehow managed to really predict the, like it, the, the, the predictions kind of came true for that mm-hmm. we published. Um, even though I think it's random because it's like, it's like reading tea leaves at the yeah. bottom of your teacup. But, um, anyway, some people like that and they, yeah. they have a, they believe in it. So, mm-hmm. it, and it's interesting to, to learn about it. So, yeah. yeah. Great. I'm looking forward to it. Um, do you have any book recommendations for people on topics like, uh, future of money or Bitcoin or asset management or, Ooh. How to save money. I, I know it's a broad uh, yeah. thing now, but or maybe just what are your favorite uh, readings in that area? Oh, good question. I mean, as far as the future of money, I really like Saifedean Amos's Bitcoin standard. I just think that, you know, he makes so many good points in there. Um, it's, it's hard not to believe that storyline that he, that he creates. I like that argument. Um, towards a global reserve currency. And um, 
let's see, outside of crypto, I mean, I, also the Princeton book, there's the Princeton book, Bitcoin and Bitcoin and cryptocurrency technologies written by four Princeton professors. Yeah, they also have videos. And they also have yeah, the yeah. Coursera course on yeah. YouTube. Yeah, they have the, the mm -hmm. lectures. And I think that that book is excellent. It just goes through, you know, what is multi-signature and explains like in pretty simple terms, mm -hmm. like how these different things work, Schnorr signatures and that kind of thing. And um, that was that was a great book and set of courses online. And yeah, outside of Bitcoin, I guess for me, um, I liked a book that I read recently was The Wisdom of Finance. Mm -hmm. um, it's it's an Indian American author. I'm not sure what his name was. It started with a D. I would look it up and yeah. put it in the side, uh, show notes. Yeah. Wisdom of Finance was actually a really nice read. So that was probably like the latest book on finance I read that came out recently that I thought was really, really interesting. And yeah. Okay, great. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Uh, so where can people follow you if they want to get updates on your newest uh, work and stuff? Well, I hope everybody subscribes for the new edition of the report um, on our website. And um, in the meantime, they can follow me on Twitter. My Twitter handle is CryptoPhD. So, okay. Yeah, I will put it there also. Thanks a lot. Yeah, great. Thanks for uh, coming and uh, giving your time to us. And I hope I'll see you again yeah. to talk about Great. Stuff. It was my pleasure. And, and I look forward to um, listening to your podcast and, uh, yeah, um, discussing, you know, these, finding out more about this market together. Yeah. yeah. Great. Thanks. Bye. Bye. This was today's episode. Thank you for listening. Please subscribe to the podcast in your podcast player, share it with your friends and family on Twitter or Facebook, and leave a review on iTunes or YouTube. If you want to advertise your product or company, please send an email to hello at bitcoincopodcast.com. Thanks for listening and have a great day. Audio editing and signation spoken by Katrin Eidenhammer. ID and production by Anita Posch.